I had two weeks to prepare for this sermon. Should be good, huh? We all hope so. We're in Judges chapter 2. Judges 2 is a summary of Israel under the times of the judges. We read in chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Joshua has died. He's 110 years old when he died, and they buried him in the mountains of Ephraim. And then it talks about the following generation that does not recognize God, not in the regard that all he has done for Israel. Calvary Chapel as a church movement, we're not a denomination. Maybe, may we always be a movement, but anyway, is passing from the generation of Chuck Smith, our founder, to the next generation of leaders. In years gone by, I would attend the annual pastors conference about this time of year, every year in Southern California which was also a good reason for me to visit my daughter and my grandkids out there. However, a couple years back, I attended the conference, the first conference that Chuck was no longer part of it. He had passed away earlier that year. And for me, I was disappointed. It just wasn't that there was, you know, a lack of leadership or anything like that, but Chuck wasn't there. And now, I hope that lets me understand more fully how the generation that followed Joshua, how they didn't know the Lord in the same way or the work of the Lord that he had done under Joshua because now their leader is gone. Each generation must come after the Lord in and of themselves. And come to the Lord with their whole heart. That makes it essential for us as we grow older to pass along to our children the benefits, the beauty of being a Christian and serving God. And for years here at Calvary Chapel, we never had a youth ministry. But now our youth, along with their leaders... They're excited about coming to church and seeing one another and getting together and having their study and their outings and all that kind of thing. And may the Lord bless our Utes. You know what a Ute is? They're part of a Paiute tribe. But anyway, we have Utes. Having said this, let's read the behavior of the children of Israel after Joshua's death. And that's in Judges 2, verses 11 through 17. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hands of plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, 
so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down before them. And they turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do so. At the end of each and every sermon that I give, I stand up here and I will declare to you God's blessings upon all of you. You know, may the Lord bless you and keep you, etc. But what if I had a bad week? Lori's been mean to me. Hard to believe, but she can be. Things of the farm are in disarray. My cows are tearing down fences. Moses, my dog, continues to wander the neighborhood. And so I can come in here to church and have a grump on. And I can begin to preach at you people how you're headed for God's judgment, not his blessings. And that's kind of what we've read through here. Verse 11 begins with, Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Baals, which are nothing more than wicked idols. Verse 12, Israel provoked the Lord to anger. Verse 14, and the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Consider the behavior of Israel for a moment, that God would say such things to them. His anger is hot towards them. Now, we know God, and we know his attribute of being loving towards his people with grace and long-suffering is his better side. But we have read here that God's anger is hot towards his people. If nothing else, that shows us God has emotions. But God's anger, it can be devastating. As in this uh, passage we just read, calamity and distress in verse 15. And God has delivered Israel into the hands of their enemies. God has removed Israel's uh, protection. And Israel no longer can stand or withstand their enemies. And we find God now being against his own people. And he uses the evil enemies of Israel to distress or chastise his own people. Verse 17, it says, Israel played the harlot. They prostituted themselves before God by worshiping false gods. Now we can say that and say it kind of in a casual way, uh, but 
it doesn't show us what they were really doing. So let's just take a minute and look at the worship of idols a little closer. The worship of an idol is nothing more than lust being out of control. The symbol for Ashtara or Ashtoreth, whichever, was nothing more than a nude woman riding a lion. And she had in one hand a lily, and in the other hand she had a serpent. Worship of Astara was nothing more than a sexual orgy. Male and female participants would prostitute themselves in honor of Astara. Astara was called uh, Quetzu or something of that nature, or the Holy One. The lily that she carried in one hand spoke of grace. The serpent spoke of fertility. War, violence, and lust were practiced in the honor of Ashtoreth. Doesn't that kind of remind you of modern day movies? War, violence, lust, hmm? Many kings and leaders of Israel became involved in the worship dedicated unto Ashtoreth. Worship, it was done on hilltops, it was done in places that were uh, pleasant places that were set aside for uh, this worship of Ashtoreth. The worship of Baal and Ashtoreth was not a casual whoops, I fell into sin, but it, it was a planned holiday, a dedication to out-of-control, lustful behavior. And violence was practiced in these worship sessions. Human sacrifice was not uncommon. And for Israel, a people after God, this idol worshiping is a total affront, an insult to the living God. And God looked upon it as an insult because Israel was separated unto God as a people. Israel, they have benefited from God's favor, are now behaving like their neighbors that are out of control in lust. No wonder God calls their behavior harlotry. That's a strong word. Israel, as with Christians, are to be a separated people dedicated to God. Not a people given over to lustful uh, desires of sex and violence. God expects a little restraint in our battle against the flesh. He really does. We're to be separated. So today, when we hear perverted people say things like, my sexual behavior doesn't hurt anyone. After all, there's no victim. We're consenting adults. I cringe when I hear that kind of thing. 
When our lustful behavior offends God, our creator, we cross that line where God says, now my anger burns against you. I love Revelation 4.11, rather, the old King James, because it tells us that mankind was created for God's pleasure. Want to know why you exist? For God's pleasure. And when we as God's creation resort to worship of sex and violence, it is an affront. It is offensive to our God who created us. So let's read now Judges 2, 18 through 23. Verse 18. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they reverted and behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doings nor from their stubborn ways. Then the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant which I commanded their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died. So that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Israel has deserted their God. They've left their God for other gods. They've left the God who loves and blesses. They've left the God of compassion. What does Israel deserve? Well, really, they deserve to be destroyed. But then we read verse 18. But God was moved with pity, for God heard Israel's groanings, from being oppressed. A beautiful picture of the compassion of our Lord. Verse 20, God is hot with anger towards Israel, but the kindness of God prevails over his anger. And God was moved with pity when they groaned because of the oppression that they were going through. We see our loving God being merciful when Israel deserved chastisement and destruction. But isn't that true of each and every one of our lives? My goodness, yes. Israel would benefit when God raised up a good leader, a good judge, over them. They benefited. But when that good judge or leader would die... Israel would immediately revert revert back to corrupt behavior, bowing down, worshiping false gods. And this happened to be a pattern 
that followed Israel for years, all through the judges. They sin, they worship foreign God, and God chastises them before he restores them. Let's bring that up to date. Christianity today is being assaulted vigorously by the enemies of God. You can worship a false god and nobody cares or is upset. But offer up a prayer in the name of Jesus. And all the opponents of Christ begin to cry out, separation of church and state. They're not against worshiping foreign gods, the world isn't. They're against worshiping the true and living God. Being a true Christian can disqualify you from government appointments in the United States. Appointments to things like, oh, the Supreme Court. If you are a true Christian, you will not be considered for the Supreme Court. What day do we live in? But we read of appointments of, say, Muslims, and that's just being diverse. You know, we're just being open. And lately, just recently, we've had a sexual deviant appointed over the army, Eric Fanning, professing homosexual now over our entire army. Israel's history parallels America's history in a strikingly similar way. Israel was highly prone to disobedience and stubbornness. You might say that about America. America, like Israel, has been blessed with good leaders. We just haven't had many lately. <laughs> Sorry. I am fearful, truly fearful, of the political leaders of America today. To me, the future looks grim. But that's just me being pessimistic. God provided Israel with a remedy, a salvation, a solution. And God has provided Christian America with a remedy And it's not for us to cry out, God bless America. I want God's blessings. I pronounce God's blessing as the, at the end of every sermon. But God's remedy for America is not for us to beg for him to bless us. Not to look for a political savior, someone who will govern the way we want them to govern. But the remedy is in Second Chronicles chapter 7. So you might want to turn there. Second Chronicles chapter 7. King Solomon has completed building the temple in Jerusalem. He's made great sacrifice of animals to the Lord. 
God appears to Solomon and speaks wisdom to Solomon. Second Chronicles 7, verse 12 and 13. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And when I shut up heaven and there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. God is telling Solomon when drought comes, when the locusts or when evilness has devoured the land and pestilence is all around you. Just think of the Zika virus for a moment. What a pestilence. But God says, here's your salvation. Here's your remedy. And that's in 2 Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sins, and heal their land. Notice God does not call upon the vast multitudes, but God calls upon his people. We are his people. If my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray, God says, I want my people, Christians, we have the opportunity to change our environment, even our nation. We have it. Whether it's be a political situation that is confronting or a drought like climate, prayer is nothing more than aligning myself with what God already wants to do. That's what prayer is. It's getting me in alignment with what God wants to do. And when we begin to seek God, truly seek God, our prayer life becomes effective. Notice what God desires. First, he wants us to be humble. Humility of ourselves before God is simply recognizing our situation as it really is. That's all humility is. Looking at the situation honestly. Second, we're to seek after God. Come after God in an honest, sincere, dedicated way. Have you ever heard somebody pray and they're praying to the listeners versus God? Don't be doing that. God knows your heart. Be honest with God in prayer. The disciples on one occasion cried out to Jesus, Lord, we believe. And then they thought about what they had said. Help our unbelief. <laughs> I, I've, I've prayed that way. But you know, I never hesitate or try not to ever hesitate in making my will, my desires known to God out loud verbally. I don't play games with God when I pray. 
God tells us he knows our needs even before we ask. But I also like to add to my prayers, God, your will be done. I understand, I realize that I only look through a glass darkly. In other words, I don't see the full picture as it is. And so I want God to do his will. There are many enemies of God, enemies of righteousness, and they are shouting out. They are screaming out their agenda before the world. I believe a Christian has a right to pray against God's enemies. I use that right. David, on one occasion, it's almost funny, he said, break out their teeth, Lord. And he's talking about his enemies. On another occasion, David declares, your enemies, God, are my enemies. I hate. And love the thing, same things you hate and love, Lord. And I can find myself praying against evil, ungodly people and their agenda. We have that right. But God does not want us to be evil like our adversaries. So God says in this verse, you, my people, turn from your evil ways, your wicked ways. And when your heart is pure before me, you have great liberty. And we have great power in prayer when we turn from our evil ways. When I hear people say, I believe in the power of prayer, I think I understand in what they're talking about. But I believe more in whom I am praying to than my ability to pray. I'm praying to God. My prayers may not sound effective, but God sees my heart. I believe in whom I'm praying to, not the fact that I'm praying. We also know the prayers of a righteous man avails much. What a great verse. We have a rightful position when we live for the Lord to pray and ask for things to be done, for God's will to prevail. God listens. He hears us if we turn from our sinful ways. And there is a key. You can't be living a sinful lifestyle and expect your prayers to be effective. God tells us, if you will repent, I will forgive you. God is hot with anger towards Israel, but they cry out and groan before him, and he has pity on them. Here's what I call the kicker. Here is the life-changing, the nation-changing promise. God will not only forgive our sins, God will heal our land and our land desperately needs healing and my friends we are called by God's name 
we carry the name Christians, Christ-like. God will heal America if we, his people, will humble ourselves and pray. I really believe that. So instead of griping and complaining about the political picture or the immoral America that is all around us, let me urge you to humble yourselves and pray. Seek the face of God. For God is loving and he is gracious. And just perhaps, just perhaps, God is not done with America. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father, you tell us to humble ourselves and pray. And Lord, we want to have your heart when we pray. We want to align ourselves with you. So lead us and guide us in our prayer by your spirit, Lord. Show us where and how to pray. The disciples ask you how to pray. We ask you how to pray, Lord. We want to be praying for the things that are on your heart. So, Lord, we ask you, heal our land. Return America once again into a godly nation, Lord. We pray for that. We ask for that. Lord, my prayer is that I just hope we haven't gone so far that there's no redeeming us. Lord, make America once again a God-fearing nation. We pray for that. We ask for that. Be with our politicians. Lord God, convict them of their sins. Lead them into righteousness, Lord. We pray for that. We pray that we, would, be, as your people, would be dedicated to praying for those around us, not just complaining about them. So, Lord, give us a heart that comes after you with all of our heart. So we pray for America, Lord. Restore, heal our land is our prayer. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.